0: And that was the pinch me moment, I think, when also other people around us who for years still weren't quite sure what this YouTube thing was, suddenly there was a big article in the Telegraph or the Guardian, you know, broadsheet newspaper, and suddenly people were like, ah, that's really cool. We went around London taking photos of us on billboards and stuff, and it felt cool. But that was the moment that I think YouTube also saw value in our content.
1: It starts with just taking that leap.
0: Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it
1: fails you are yeah. going to be proud of. It doesn't matter how badly you got beaten in Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Yippee-y-y. Seeing his and his friends' faces plastered on billboards and newspapers around London, it seemed that Sorted had finally made it. If YouTube recognized their content's worth, then surely hundreds of thousands of followers would be quick to follow, or so Ben Eberle thought. Instead, what Ben has found through his many years of experience is that there's no making it on YouTube, no closing the fridge door for good and saying the hard part's over. With over 2.6 million subscribers on YouTube, his cooking channel, Sorted Food, has grown massively since its start in 2010. But beyond the big numbers and viral videos, Ben emphasizes that his sense of accomplishment now comes from both the fun he's had along the way and the changes he's made in the culinary culture, rather than spikes in popularity and ad revenue. Before hitting this huge number of 2 million, there were four weeks of French cooking to learn, 5,000 cookbooks to sell, and 1,500 bottles of beer to drink, all with his closest friends and family. And before all that, Ben was picking fresh vegetables in the garden at eight years old, wondering how to bake his first fish pie. I was wondering if you could tell me about your garden growing up at home.
0: Mike, oh, we're going right back there. Okay, my garden. Um, So yeah, I I grew up in Hertfordshire, as all the other co-founders did as well. But I was a a relatively modest house, did have a garden. And at the bottom of the garden, my dad had a veg patch. Um, And I think that was probably some of my earliest memories of food, was especially in the summer, running up the garden with armfuls of whatever had been grown, tomatoes, courgettes, uh, runner beans, those kind of things. So, you know, pretty simple staple veg, nothing special or heritage like we would be celebrating now perhaps. But for me, that was always a a love from a very early age and chomping on them straight off the plant as well as getting sick and tired of eating nothing but the same vegetable (laughs) for a month because you have literally a bounty of it.
1: When did this uh, interest develop from running around chomping on vegetables to maybe being a little bit more involved in the kitchen was that something that your parents uh, encouraged
0: encouraged and always allowed I think I remember my auntie used to buy me a cookbook every Christmas. Jamie Oliver's cookbook. Every year, obviously, Jamie Oliver had another cookbook out, and I got another cookbook at Christmas signed by uh, my auntie, and I would spend Christmas and Boxing Day flicking through it, looking for which recipes I wanted to cook first. How old were you? Somewhere between 8 and 10, maybe. Don't quote me on that, but it took me hours. It took me hours because I was just doing everything from scratch and loving every moment of it.
1: Yeah, how did you feel? as you got closer to a finished product? like I remember feeling remember like...
0: just how that it, felt? It was definitely an adventure. And I'm not going to say I can remember every feeling, but I, I do remember the almost feeling of empowerment. So mum and dad have always been big foodies. So not in the industry, not trained, but we always had scratch cooking. So the fact that they were letting me have a go and, and cook dinner, not just have something for dessert and make an apple crumble, but actually this is what we were going to be eating tonight. So there was kind of this pressure. But at the same time, this, yeah, empowerment of like, actually, maybe I can do this. And it was, and it turned out pretty good. And my brothers are harsh critics. I mean, they, <laughs> they both have like hollow stomachs. They can eat for days, but they'll also tell you if it's not very good. So I knew at the time it was harsh critics around the table, um, as loving as family always are, but you knew it had to make it good. And they wouldn't just say it was good just for the sake of it. So I feel like on that day I passed and it was kind of, that's the first thing I remember. And I think it probably just scaled from there.
1: When did you have your first job? In food and what was that like?
0: It was at the very first age that I could. So it was maybe sixteen. Um, and I went to all the obvious places from garden centers to supermarkets, anywhere that would give a sixteen-year-old a Saturday job, basically. And what kind of job were you looking for? Anything. I really wasn't fussed. I just knew that I wanted some extra pocket money and some extra spending money. Um so literally working in supermarkets, working um, in a garden center, I tried, and I couldn't get a job in any of those places because they didn't have any vacancies that weren't already filled. But third time lucky, I tried a pub kitchen um, and they were up for giving me a chance. So I literally started washing pots in a chain pub kitchen. What
1: did you think this job would be and what did it actually like turn out?
0: I think one thing that's never changed is just an addiction for learning. So even at school, I sort of took a lot more of the academic subjects and I kind of knew that I was interested in food because even at that point I was doing food technology as a subject and I chose and take it an A-level. So I knew food was of interest, but for a summer job, I, I literally didn't care. And therefore I didn't hang much on it other than I knew that I'd go and give it my best shot because I guess that's just an approach to everything.
1: When are you given the opportunity to maybe do something more and what does that look like?
0: Well, in that first kitchen, it was surprisingly early because I was doing the Saturday shift, and essentially, that the head chef would work all through the week and would do a busy Friday evening shift. I just knew that if he gave me the chance to come in and open up the kitchen to accept the food deliveries and crack on with a list, which was a list of mise en place prep, I think he realized that he could have a lie in on a Saturday morning and I'd be all right to crack through a list. And then when he got in ready for lunch service or sometimes mid afternoon ready for the really busy evening, then it was like hand the reins back over to him. So I kind of got that first taste pretty quick and fair play to him for giving me the chance. But also I think he saw the opportunity of not not setting the alarm for 7am.
1: How does it progress in, in that kitchen?
0: Yeah. So those, those two years of working in that kitchen, I would do Saturday and Sunday shifts, um, pretty long ones. So I'd cram in a good 24 hours across sort of two days a weekend and then go back to school. And one of the subjects was food technology. 24 hours in in two days. Yep. Like I said, it was a pressure job. But I think what that gave me was loads of real life experience so that at school, when I was studying food technology, a level, rather than everything just being textbook based, I had real life examples to base kind of the answers on. And I think that really helped in the same way that work experience in many um academic courses are are so important. Like industrial experience is is key.
1: So as you're approaching university, what are you thinking about studying? Where are you thinking about going? What are you thinking about doing?
0: On paper, you know, at school, as well as doing extracurricular stuff at school, I was doing science, maths, and doing pretty well in them, chemistry, biology, you know, A grades in A level. So the obvious choice is to continue that, to go into medicine or to go into law or these were the kind of careers that based on the seven years I'd had at secondary school, the careers textbook tells you you should be doing next. And whilst I always like the logic of those, so science, I still love science. In fact, cooking is just a science. Um, maths, I still love maths, maybe not the maths we were doing at A level, but we all use maths every day. It's super key. I understand why all of these are super important, but I don't think I was ever in love with those subjects. Whereas food I was. So I just wanted to do food and there there weren't many, any courses um, at university that required high entry level, but they were more vocational. They were a huge amount of practical hands-on skills and some managerial skills behind running food businesses. And that's the one that I found that I really was interested in and I wanted to do it. And a lot of people, including careers advisors at school kind of said, "What, just that. So I went to do a a degree called culinary arts management. So I think with food, you can go a couple of different ways.
1: You eventually do get into a culinary program tell me about what it was like
0: so oddly enough because it was such a practical course there was a what they had was a a bridging program so if you'd come into this course through college then you would have a lot of kitchen skills knife skills classical um recipe technique and therefore you could join the course and that'd be great they basically said, if you're coming through a more academic A-level route, you need to do a four-week intense bridging course. Um, so I did that. So for four weeks, I went off to university and i that's where I kind of met new friends at uni. And we all went through this bridging course together and we did four weeks, pretty intense. Um, living the uni lifestyle, don't get me wrong. We were out <laughs> most nights, but yeah. we had eight hours of practical every single day. I remember that chef lecturer, um, chef Ferrier, his very laissez-faire approach given that we were doing 40 hours of lectures a week there were lots of us in the class and he was just he would just let it run and then pick you up where it was going wrong and that very kind of hands off learn by getting it wrong a couple of times step by step hand holding isn't always the way you need to almost learn for yourself but within a framework and in those 4 weeks i learned a lot more about the fundamentals of cooking than i had in the 2 years previous in a kitchen
1: yeah, so can we go and like, like really go into like the presence of one of those kitchen experiences?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a, there's a few that stand out. What one was at uni, um, and it was a Spanish tapas restaurant. So you're talking small plates. No dish on the menu was difficult but there were lots of dishes. And if you had maybe 50 tables in the restaurant, that could be 300 plates of food because every table is ordering multiple tapas to share. So this was very much a logistics game of making sure that every dish goes out as good as the last, but at pace pace and um, in volume. And I think it was knowing how to operate like that without getting overwhelmed.
1: Yeah, so what, what was it like actually like in the moment?
0: So I remember some of the busiest shifts, like a Saturday evening where you're also, you know, the front of the house are turning the tables a few times. And I remember being on the pass and we had a um, a tapas oven, basically a pizza oven. So it's running like 400 degrees Celsius. And there's lots of these little plates that the team, including ourselves, have spent the afternoon prepping up so that at the moment during service, when it comes on, you're literally just throwing that cast iron pan with, I don't know, goat's cheese stuffed mushrooms and a chilli butter in the pizza oven. But you've got to keep an eye on it because you've also got 12, 15 other things in there and they all are ready at slightly different times and you've got 20 different tables ordering four, five, six tapas each. And I remember those moments when I think that was my very academic science, maths. I like boxes. I love a Sudoku puzzle. I feel like that's where that part of my brain came back as well as the the love of food and and sort of the, the cooking part. Because honestly, chefs who run busy passes, it is a time management thing more than anything else and if anyone falls by the wayside everything else that goes to that table is going to have something missing so it's about kind of juggling and multitasking um, and I remember that was when I had the most fun I think that was sheer adrenaline gets you through it because it's busy it's hot I still have the scars to prove really? as I was diving that in- scar is from that kitchen yep And that was diving into a pizza oven that was too hot and slightly missing it in the moment, grazing the bottom of my fingers. And the reaction was to, my knee-jerk reaction, I slapped the top of the oven and my hand stuck to it. Ah. Um, And instantly, like, ah, okay, straight out of the pass, straight over into ice water. But you know there's somebody else on the team who was on the back bench doing some prep, who instantly steps into that role and can take over. Even at the back, while I've got my hand in ice, I'm shouting, don't forget the sardines and the ghost cheese mushrooms. They need to go on table 37 as well. Wow, That's a crazy story. <laughs> it's fun. I missed it. I missed that part of it for sure.
1: I, I feel like actually something I, I've, I've talked to a lot of people about with high intensity jobs, there are a lot of striking uh, similarities between those two is like nothing feels as important or as high stakes.
0: And you get instant gratification because so another kitchen I worked in that was more open plan, you can go through that process through service, it's really busy. But I remember working in the dessert section and you could literally see the food go out and you could see it being put down on tables in front of diners. Generally speaking, if it was savory food, almost in unison, you'd see the whole table lean in and take a sniff. And then 10, 15 minutes later, you see empty plates coming back to the kitchen. And that, you know, that all that pressure and stress and adrenaline is is worth it. And we'll go again tomorrow. We'll do it again. Going
1: back to the university side, I'd love to talk about, you know, a
0: project that you started. So I was in my third year of four back at home on a semester break. Um, Barry, Barry Taylor, who's one of the other co-founders just reached out to me and said, look, I've got this idea because I think we had been away for a weekend with friends and a done one of those things where you go to the supermarket and you all buy a bunch of stuff and we took it back and cooked up a barbecue and salads and I think just naturally my controlling way is kind of stood in the kitchen and not did it all but like commanded almost conducted like you do the potato salad you do the coleslaw and if anyone needed any help I'd show them but then leave them to get on with it which I think was that kind of way of I like sort of Barry glocked onto that and then sort of said well, let's let's find a way of capturing that plus he was a photographer and he was doing a lot of freelance work and um, he kind of wanted a place for some of his work and his kind of portfolio and that's when he kind of pitched to me the idea of doing a cookbook
1: when you heard the pitch for that what are you thinking
0: well we instantly looked at if there was anything else like it because we we were literally sharing recipes with everyone at the pub on the back of a beer mat like if this is easy enough to do at home and I can put it on a beer mat then why aren't you why aren't you giving it a go like it's there's no reason why people aren't cooking was my thought because Growing up in a foodie family, doing it from a very young age, for me it was second nature and I was surprised that other people weren't. So it was kind of a way of realizing that if the eight of us around the table were all struggling at uni, then maybe this is something we could put in a book. Um, so he pitched it and I sort of went, Yeah, that sounds fun. I love to keep busy. That would be a really cool project. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, I went back to uni and just started writing recipes and testing recipes because everything, I wanted everything to be, to obviously work, to be tested which was the cheapest exercise ever because I was at uni and I needed to eat anyway. So just every night for three, four weeks, I would cook one of the recipes and I would literally just take a photo on my phone, which thinking back to uni might not even have been a phone. It might have been a um, digital handheld camera just so that I had a log of what it looked like and I'd write the recipe and, and tweak it. And then I'd send all of those to Barry and say, look, this is, I think, the cookbook. And we took a whole bunch of friends to a rented um, accommodation down in Cornwall. And we cooked up pretty much the entire book in three days because we realized if we were going to cook, we wanted two things. One, we wanted a home for all the food we were cooking. So we needed some hungry people with us. And two, we didn't want it all just to be cooked by me. We wanted to prove that other students could also cook this. So it was a bit more collective and a bit more kind of, we'll tackle these together. So we literally shot the cookbook across three days on a bank holiday, an Easter bank holiday down in Cornwall. Was that like a, because
1: that seems like a little bit of an investment.
0: It was. And and to be fair, so we had some um, support up front a, along with the the first print of the cookbook. So we printed, I think it was 5,000 cookbooks, self-published to start with. And obviously that comes at a cost and we had that support.
1: 5,000 cookbooks? Yeah.
0: Yeah, the next problem was okay. They're in the shed. How do we sell them before they get damp? um Because yeah. we didn't we, we didn't really have a plan for them. Like we were a little bit naive in that sense. We just had an idea. But you're
1: going like you're like okay like let's rent this place, cook for all our friends. I, I I love how and I and I think this is where like the best projects originate. Where you just start, kind of like what your 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 teacher initially did. You have the framework for like succeeding. Um, but let's just go into it and see where we mess up
0: and that framework we have been so fortunate I mean, we are so privileged that we had the opportunity to play for the first you know 5 6 years of sorted where the the key was to build a brand and to do i mean I, I say build a brand this very early stages we had no idea of a brand or an idea this was just a cookbook
1: yeah so like how do you turn this this purchase into something that even makes a modicum of financial sense.
0: Blind confidence, and I think I think genuinely looking back, I don't think we realised how big five thousand was as a number because it made sense to do it in that way because that was where the economies of scale kicked in. And you know, Wait, a,
1: why did you choose five thousand?
0: I can't remember. But as <laughs> students, so what we did petty. know was that we'd never get a publishing deal. We'd never do it the traditional way, and the traditional way being that a publisher will pay you in advance to make the book in the first place. And then once that advance is recouped, you might get a small amount for every book after that. Whereas we realized, you know, kind of basic maths that actually, if we print them ourselves, turns out in quite big volume, um, they're relatively cheap per unit and they sell at the same amount as retail price you get in store. And it's was like, that was a decent margin. So that's where we saw the opportunity. And we were able to store them for free in a friend of family's um, sort of, garage can you tell me about how you were even making money selling selling cookbooks i think somewhere we still have a fanny pack that's full of change and stuff that was from the very first time we took we bought this is ridiculous as i say out loud we bought an old burger van and it was so terrible and we bought it we cleaned it all up we um put some vinyl on it like branded it the same as the cookbook And we managed to convince student freshers fairs. And again, this was way back in the day when now to be at a student freshers fair, you have to pay a lot of money to be there. We started by just going to all of our individual universities and pulling strings. And really quick, can you define what that fair is? Freshers week, first week of term for new students, where it's a chance for lots and lots of partying, lots and lots of networking. But a lot of brands also buy into those fairs. So it's, it's everything from student accommodation to student bank accounts to- So they get like exposure. Clubs yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And we managed to convince that as students, we went back to Birmingham. We went back to Bournemouth. We went back to all the universities that we'd individually trained at or studied at. And that's pulling favours was how we kind of began. But those days we would sell recipes from the cookbook and they were all pretty affordable because they were all scratch cooking, a lot of prep. But we made a bit of money on those. We'd sell a few cookbooks and we'd walk out with a couple hundred quid. We got by. We weren't living on that. We were we were working proper jobs on the side. So I was doing other kitchen work evenings and weekends. Barry was, doing, was a wedding photographer. We had that luxury to earn at the weekends as chefs and photographers, but to do this during the week and still live at home. So there was no rent. You know, very lucky that my parents who... I'd realized that they probably could have had a son who went off to be a doctor or a lawyer, yeah. instead is still um, scrimping and being fed every night at home, but going off and doing this thing that we still loved um, and were desperate to make it work.
1: Was there ever a moment where you're like, we've been at this for a few years, like, is this worth the time? Is this, is this ever going to pan out? Should I get like a quote unquote real
0: job, you know? We wanted to make it work. We knew it would work. There was an opportunity to make it work we just weren't we didn't have all the answers we just had the I guess the attitude and the energy to keep pushing at it and to keep trying and accept that not everything and not every idea worked we had a few absolute flops which we look back on and laugh but they were fun too so
1: you create all of these cookbooks you're trying to find a way to sell them there's this assorted beer and I'd love to talk about what happened with that ploy.
0: So I think you really have to get to know and understand the way that Barry thinks. He is brilliant and the really much the only reason that we've continually evolved is he's always looking for next to new opportunities. And it was one of the side jobs. While I was doing catering in a hotel or restaurant, he was doing design work and photography and he helped um, somebody redesign the labels for beer. So this guy had made award-winning beer. The beer itself was award-winning. The bit, the bottle and the branding and the label wasn't great. It certainly on the shelf didn't stack up to the quality inside the bottle. So Barry basically said, or was, was hired to do a design job and a branding job, which he did, and branded up bottles really nicely. And instead of payment for that freelance design, he just said, how about 1500 bottles of beer? Because it was just kind of like, I think the guy joked about it and said, I'll pay you a beer if you want. And Barry just sees opportunities where they don't exist. And that was one of them. And he said, oh, yeah. And Barry made our own labels and it became the Sorted Blonde. And it was only ever meant to be a marketing tool to get more students to listen to us. We didn't do our research. So it was bottle conditioned beer. And it was a clear bottle with a clear label, which meant it was affected by sunlight. So our, our, these beers were literally a month or two old. And if you open them, they practically exploded. <laughs> and that's just one example of a number of things we've tried because we've gone, why not?
1: Well, that's, I think that is the amazing thing, but also one of the risks about this zigzagging that you do. Was there ever a conversation after that where it was like, what next? Or you just.
0: And I think time and effort is more important than any of that because you put your heart and soul into everything. And it doesn't always work out or the market shifts or a competitor comes up and does it better than you. So you just have to let some things go or change with the times, but it's always been with the same mission. And that's just to get more people to fall in love with food, connect people through the awesomeness of food. We started to create videos as adverts for the book really. And we put them on YouTube because it was this platform that had really just started. And it was free for us to put stuff on. And it was free for people to watch the adverts. And we thought, well, that's the best way of reaching people who might buy the book.
1: Do you have a strategy for what you were thinking would perform on YouTube? Because like, what, this is 2008, right? So YouTube is two years old.
0: We produced videos, to be perfectly honest, in the same way we do now, 12 years on, in the sense that We never produced adverts, even though their purpose was to sell the book. We never produced advertorial. We only ever produced editorial. Things that we thought were fun, that were engaging, that people watched it. They would get something out of it. They would learn. And then if they wanted to buy the book, they could do because there was 60 other recipes like this.
1: When did this plan start to gain a little bit of traction?
0: It took it took a number of years. So at, at first, Barry and I were very much leading it. It was all people we knew and friends because there was no money in it. So it had to be people you wanted to hang out with and just do something fun to build a CV. That's how it started.
1: In 2010. Right. That's when you started your YouTube channel. Yep. So it's two years working on something that has not turned any kind of profit. So like how like why are you why are you still going?
0: It, yeah, it wasn't success in terms of money or revenue. It to be to be perfectly honest, it still isn't. It's more the fact that we set out to try and help students and to make a difference. And I think that that bugbear of you know I love the idea of teaching. Um, and Barry and Jamie always said at school they didn't care what they did when they were older, but as long as it makes some kind of a difference.
1: What was the growth like
0: from 2010 to like 2012? We reached out to Charlie So Cool Like um, on YouTube, who at the time was the UK's largest YouTuber. And we just, we, I don't know, we had the the desperation maybe <laughs> or the, the, the confidence, I don't know, to reach out and realise that food was something that connected everyone. We reached out to him and said, hey, what's your favourite dish and can we come and cook it for you? And he went, what? I said, well, what is your favourite dish and we will come to your flat Thinking back, kind of ridiculous, and we'll cook it for you. And we did. We we went to his flat in London, and we cooked a dish for him, and we put it on our YouTube channel, and that obviously gave us huge growth. And then we sort of think, well, we've done the biggest in the UK. Who else do we reach out to? And we we got invited to VidCon, and we went out there. And again, why we were given a chance? This. UK YouTube channel that didn't have enough subscribers relative to everyone else who was invited. But we got invited and we, while we were there, we made a week of it. With our tiny numbers in the UK, we should never really have been able to access, except we had the balls to ask and we were willing to gift food. Like We couldn't give them audience because we didn't have it, but we could literally let us come and cook for you. And everyone was like, oh, I like food. That sounds fun.
1: And so what was the you mentioned there was growth like what kind of growth were you getting so if you had a hundred like a couple thousand uh subscribers before you went to VidCon what happened after
0: well I remember it it went up to about 10,000 subscribers which is when we had our first sponsorship and again that was somebody giving us a chance
1: the show that you were working on when you were looking into people's fridge is that fridge cam
0: so it became Fridge Cam. It really started literally as a "What's in my fridge?" I think. So how did that become Fridge Cam? Uh, so that was that was a guy who was working with us in the early days, Tom, and he was really looking at a way of wrapping up a week of content as a magazine show. So at that time, there were so many requests coming in for dishes that people wanted us to cook. The the list of things to cook was in its hundreds, and we were like, two videos a week. This is going to take us forever. So we actually, that's where we scaled up. We actually went to one video a day. And in that period, we made literally hundreds and hundreds of how-to recipe videos. But there was almost so much content. And it was, in part, it was out to beat the SEO. Like, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're searching for a recipe, we want ours to be in the top 10. Whatever that recipe is. So we need to cover a lot of bases. All of those recipes we've done this week. And fridge cam was that. It was our excuse to open up the fridge and quite literally talk to the internet. In the same way, the wardrobe leads you into Narnia. For us, FridgeCam was this vessel that we could open up and just have a conversation with everybody in the comments underneath. And for us, that was FridgeCam.
1: So how does that lead to 2016 and a collab with
0: Google? YouTube found it very difficult to talk about YouTube without talking about the content on YouTube. So they would basically promote particular creators in different categories on the platform. And by doing so, they're naturally showing off the platform in doing that. So we had an amazing um, campaign with them sort of late September, early October of That's that year. That's huge. It was though. insane. That's, That's huge. And we didn't really know how big it was going to be while we were creating the content. We worked with an agency, it was brilliant and they, they almost gave us another new strap line for the campaign. And that was, that was the pinch me moment. I think when also other people around us who for years still weren't quite sure what this YouTube thing was, suddenly there was a big article in the Telegraph or the Guardian, you know, broadsheet newspaper and suddenly people were like ah, that's really cool. And I think that's when you know, you get messages from family members that say, oh I've just seen you in the Telegraph. I'm like, yeah like five times that number of people see us every day on YouTube. But there's obviously a prestige around certain broadsheets.
1: Did you feel like you had made it?
0: We went around London taking photos of us on billboards and stuff and it felt cool but we presume that would be the moment that everything took off it didn't i mean we've never ever 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 gone viral even from the very first day of collabing with charlie so cool like we've never gone viral we've only ever had kind of steady growth wow but you do have
1: brand buy-in which is incredibly powerful for making money um so can you lead me up to the android uh sponsorship
0: yeah, that, I mean, that was a particularly sort of standout one in the sense that I think up until that point, we were food content. So they literally came to us and said, we've got a budget of X, we'd like four videos, and we want you to help people to understand that they can leave their home and trust Android Pay. So contactless payment, this was very, very new. Were people really trusting this contactless payment on their phone? And that was it. Can you prove to people that it, you can rely on it. That was literally all they were interested in. And we came up with a format that again put our community right at the heart of that kind of concept. We opened the fridge, we spoke into the fridge, just like we always did, and said, hey, we would love you to invite us to one of your celebrations. And when we do invite us and we come, we will take the food to the next level. And we'll be able to do that because we've got Android's credit card. It's hooked up to this phone, and we're going to have a party. Comment down below, tell us what you're celebrating in the next couple of months and we'll pick some and come along. So we basically invited ourselves to our community's special moments. And there were all sorts of things from family barbecues to graduations, people who evidently didn't have a thing to celebrate but made one up anyway, my dog's birthday or my dog's anniversary, whatever it was. And we picked a few and we reached out and we did four in total, but one was particularly special and it was a couple who had watched our content for a number of years and they invited us to their wedding. They had been watching Sorted Together for so many years, cooking recipes together. And they quite literally invited us to their most special, most precious day. And we were like, well, that will make excellent content. And we were absolutely honored to be a part of it. But the fact that they trusted us, not just for us to come, but to bring Android, a brand, into their wedding, I think that epitomized Kind of the trust that we've always had with our our audience, and it was a magical day. And I'm still watching that video back; it gives me goosebumps. So, like,
1: I think this level of interaction it seems like something that you were doubling down on, um, and then tripling down on when you launch a Kickstarter. So, how do you think about launching a Kickstarter 2017, and what was that about?
0: To be honest, that was just impatience. Right back at the start, we'd done our self published cookbook. We'd written this um, recipe for student survival. And then we did a second cookbook, also self-published. And then many, many years passed. We were really keen to do one more cookbook. And we wanted to do the anti-cookbook, as in everybody at the time was doing um, green, superfood, lean, in 15, kind of everything was about health. And for us, we were like, we're a group of friends. And sometimes, although it's really important that we all eat a balanced diet, you're allowed to enjoy food. And it should never be a guilty pleasure. It should just be a pleasure. You should never feel guilty about the things you love. So we came up with this concept of doing a whole book full of desserts that you could literally snuggle up on the sofa under a duvet and watch a film and eat this ridiculously indulgent dessert. So literally desserts in duvets. And it was kind of, the publisher liked the idea. And this was the summer. And they said, yeah, yeah, we could have it out in time for Christmas next year. And that's just because the publishing cycles take that long. It takes 14, 16 months to get the whole thing off the ground. And we just said, that is ridiculous. Our audience have already said they want it. They've told it's kind of their idea anyway, um, because we were doing themed content at the time. fridge can was a different theme each week. And the week we did desserts, there were so many requests that we were like, we need to make this a bigger thing. And we just said, that's ridiculous. They can't wait that long. We're going to do it ourselves. And that's when we took it to Kickstarter and we said, Hey, we've got this idea. You guys seem to be keen for it. If you are pledge to buy a book. And what were you expecting? Like launching this? Well, we'd obviously set ourselves a target of what we thought was reasonable and what we knew it would cost us to produce and print and make it worth our while. I think the initial target was 20,000. Um, and we launched it and just kept all of our fingers and digits crossed and In 48 hours, we more than doubled that. Wow. And we were just again blown away by at that point the number of millions of subscribers we had around the world. I don't think we'd computed what that actually meant. And they were willing to part with money before the book had even been written, which comes back to a trust thing. And then we were like, damn, we've got to make this thing. And we made it in in six weeks and we had it shipped um, in time for Christmas the year that we started. So we had the whole thing done in like three months end to end. And for us, that was the first time we, we realized that the audience wants stuff. And as long as we're listening to what they want and that they're, they're up for paying for it, we don't necessarily always need sponsors. So rather than taking money and then having to pass their key messaging on to the audience, we could do the messaging that our audience wanted and charge them for it. So on YouTube, you are always playing a bit of a game and walking a bit of a tightrope. You've got to keep doing the stuff that's popular and is trending to make sure you're reaching new audiences and staying relevant. And sometimes some of the more useful stuff isn't that exciting. And so it doesn't perform as well. And yet we know that people wanted it and needed it in terms of just how to cook midweek. Like cooking midweek is a real pain in the backside if you don't know what you're doing, but it needn't be that much of a chore. So that's where the subscription model came in. We sorted, we set up the sorted club. And at first it had, a number of different points to our cookbook club where we were creating three cookbooks a year um to ship to these members but the one thing we knew that was so important more so during lockdown when more people were cooking at home was this meal packs app which we worked so hard on with our audience to, to fine-tune it and make sure it was right for them
1: but what was it like testing that with your audience and like i mean did, was it like flawless on the initial launch or like, how did it work initially?
0: No, it was clunky incredibly clunky. Um, and again, it's just huge. Thanks to the people who have supported us from day one is that they were at this point paying a monthly t- subscription to help us test something. So they were literally paying to be part of this movement that were creating something so special because right back to where we were trained at college, we might have been filleting Dover Soul, but every part of that was going to good use and being sold because that's just logical in a kitchen, but it's not the skills we have as normal home cooks. So this, all of this thinking and all of the input and feedback we we're having from this community all around the world who were using this app that wasn't perfect, but they were sticking with it and getting great results. We were making constant changes. And it was only this year, the spring of this year, that we finally launched a product which we renamed um, Sidekick, quite literally the sidekick in your kitchen to make you the hero. And it's got all of that thinking in. We, we beta tested it for two years with our audience. And by beta, I mean, you know, these people were paying to test it with us. And that's the power of a community and a movement. When we launched Sidekick, it is super smart and is now helping tens of thousands of people cook better.
1: Absolutely incredible. And again, like speaks to what happens when you listen to your audience. Um, but where is everything today? So like, where is the channel? Where is a sidekick? Where's like the Sorted Empire?
0: The funny thing is, this is nothing compared to what the community is. We always say that like, Sorted is more than the four of us you see on camera. It's more than the 20 of us that work on on this floor. We're, We're currently in the studio now, the development kitchen, the floor beneath us. So many people that bring together what we do. Over 20 of us, full time. It's, a, it's an amazing team. But even that team is nothing in comparison to the community around the world who helped to shape everything we do. So it continues to scale at a time when food is really difficult. Everyone knows what matters, but we're not necessarily equipped to do anything about it. So it's pretty tough. It's pretty tough to, after all of that, to come out and go, but it can be fun. And with friends, you can bring people together and it can quite literally be the catalyst for amazing experiences. It all starts with food. I think it's unlocking that and, and encouraging people and empowering people to find the love in food. So, honestly, the YouTube channel is our big open arm outreach to the community. That is all entertainment and just constantly exploring and learning food. We're all still learning. I ran out of recipes ten years ago, but I'm still learning with the community and all the experts we bring in. And you move your way down through the content and down to Sidekick as a subscription app. And I promise it is changing the way that people cook and that going back to why we started and why we persevered when there was nothing to show for it is what we we're aiming for just make a bit of a difference
1: yeah and you're definitely doing that so to kind of wrap up like looking at where you started um with like 5000 cookbooks in a garage um not really knowing where this whole thing would go what piece of advice do you think you would have given your younger self and for creators and like entrepreneurs and um, people that just like want to want to make things or just like create a community, what advice do you think you would give that that younger person to maybe make the road a little uh, less treacherous?
0: I don't think it'll make the road any less treacherous, but understanding that that's okay. And I think that was the big thing is like, I do think we probably live in a world where we all love instant gratification and we just want instant results. And if we can get 90% of the way there with a fraction of the effort, that's the route we'll take. Um, I'm not sure how many of us strive for sort of perfection anymore. And I'm not sure that's necessary either. But I think what's key is knowing that overnight success is very, very, very rare. It didn't happen overnight. You've got to put in the work and the slog. And sometimes you have to look at it and go, am I still enjoying this? Now we are super lucky that we get to do this with our friends who we've known. We've been working on it for 12 odd years. We've known each other for 24 and we get to come into work and work with an amazing team five days a week and it's brilliant. So we do still enjoy it. But sometimes you have to just check, am I still enjoying this? Can I still see where this is going long term? Even if we do zigzag a bit to get there and go on, we'll give it one more go because we're not quite there yet. It hasn't happened yet, but it might happen next year. And that's kind of been our thing for 12 years. It might happen next year. And we just keep, keep climbing.
1: Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn.
0: Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia, with support from Irene Van Burkle, Matt Fernandez,
1: Renee Cannon, Sophia Donner,
0: David Saide,
1: Ashley Jimenez,
0: Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong. with support from
1: Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan,
0: Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from
1: Aiden Ashworth,
0: Mickey McCullough, Sylvie Wong,
1: and Eric Menno.
0: Our design team lead
1: is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang, Liu, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.